2: W A B E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. Today is Veterans Day, when we honor those who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces. Originally, the observance was called Armistice Day for the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, when soldiers for the Allied Nations and Germany were to cease fighting in the war to end all wars. History proved otherwise. The Vietnam War looms over the musical Dogfight on stage now at Woodstock Arts Theatre, before three soldiers ship off to Southeast Asia, they play a mean-spirited prank on an unsuspecting girl. Little do they know, the prank will not turn out the way they intended. Kyle Brumley directed this show. He joins us now with the actor Kinsey Aaron, who portrays the character of Rose. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you for having us, Lois. It's so good to be with you. Yes, thank you so much. Kyle, what is the plot
2: line of Dogfight?
3: So, based on the 1991 Warner Brothers screenplay starring River Phoenix and Lily Taylor, Dogfight follows a group of young Marines in San Francisco in 1963, as you mentioned, on the evening before they ship off to Vietnam. The title refers to an actual long-standing Marine tradition at the time, where Marines would find the most unattractive girl they could and bring her to a club. And as it's explained in the play, the Marine with the ugliest date wins the pot. The central relationship of the play is between one of the Marines, Eddie Birdlace, played by Truman Griffin, and Rose, played by Kinsey even though Eddie has brought Rose into this awful game, their meeting kind of miraculously provides opportunities for both of them to grow. And we really see the development of that connection in the second act.
2: Hmm. As you mentioned, Dogfight began as a film in 1991, later produced as an off-Broadway musical. That was in 2012. What do you think it was about the indie film that the songwriting team of Benj Pasek and Justin Paul felt would make a great musical?
3: I think it's really the, and I I think Kinsey would would love to speak to this as well, but I think it's the strength of the central relationship and how layered it is and how responsive they are to each other. It makes for a really, a story that develops so beautifully.
2: (laughs) Kinsey, do you think there were elements before it was a musical that suggested it could be great with song and production numbers?
0: Yes, I think the energy from every character that has to come with such a complex storyline gives it that that push to really make somebody want to see this in, in a real time and a live action. It goes from such extreme back and forth for each character. It would just be amazing to watch live with with the music driving everything behind it.
2: Hmm. Would you talk about the cruel attitudes and behaviors toward women that we witness in Dogfight?
0: Yeah, so it is really jarring (laughs) to, to hear some of the things that are written in the script. It's definitely one thing to read the script beforehand and go over it in rehearsals, but there are so many lines when when you're in the scene and you're working through it and you're thinking, okay, this is great. I'm trusting my fellow actors. I'm trusting my director. And then this line from one of the Marines will come out of nowhere that stops you even as an actor in your track with the harshness of it. It is really hard to get through at some times, but like we said, the heart of the central characters and the light that is the character that I'm so great to portray, Rose, she she gets me as an actor through all of the harshness that we hear from the men. She's just a constant reminder of how strong women are, regardless of how men speak of us. She keeps going, the play keeps going in spite of all of it. Kyle,
2: what kind of responsibility did you feel as a director in helping Kinsey as an actor? cope with the cruelty that's unfolding.
3: I'm so glad you asked, Lois. That was actually probably the most challenging part of our process, was making sure that we were tackling the play with uh, a modern perspective. Uh, Dogfight had its original production off-Broadway in 2012, and this was, of course, five years before the online resurgence of the Me Too movement in 2017. With those conversations still so palpable today, parts of dogfight, as Kinsey alluded to, can make us quite uncomfortable. And we wanted to ensure that we were making use of that discomfort in a way that challenges the attitudes and events presented in the play and, of course, does not condone them. And that can be a very fine line to walk.
2: Could you talk about the social parallels between this play, which takes place in 1963 and today? Uh, What? hasn't changed much.
3: I think that is one of the things that will pop out to our audience most of all, is that the reminder that 1963 was not too far in our past. And I think a lot of the attitudes and actions that we see the the men portray in this show, I think it will be a little jarring how much of those actions they can recognize in our contemporary culture.
2: Hmm. The music and lyrics are by the Oscar, Grammy, and Tony-winning duo of Pasek and Paul, known for the hits "Dear Evan Hansen" and "La La Land." How does the musical number "Some Kind of Time" set us up for what will unfold?
3: Well, it certainly starts the play off with an explosion of energy and really embraces just sort of a, a very masculine. We're going to take on the town and to take a lyric directly from the song. The whole damn town is ours to borrow, nothing standing in our way. And it provides just a great launching pad for the journey that the men in our play are going to go through.
2: Hmm. Kinsey, please tell us about Rose's song, Pretty Funny.
0: Oh, goodness. It's such a powerful song. And it's a song that I've loved for so, so, so many years and tying back to, to what we've said about how the parallels between 1963 and current, I mean, this is a song that me and several other girls have related to on our own when we were 15, 14 in our bedroom and something went terribly wrong. It's a song that you you put on and you felt too. It comes at a moment of her personal reckoning, was she's trying to figure out how to be a person in this world. She doesn't know how to get started. And I think she's been really hurt for the first time. And she's challenging her own belief. It's not just some guy challenging her, it's the world challenging her, it's herself. She's finding herself and she comes out with it uh, or in the middle of the song, it goes to this climax where she's beating herself up for being so positive and beating herself up for believing in the good in people. When in the end, it turns out that that's exactly what she needed the entire time. She was, in in a way, in the right the entire time. And her being steadfast in her own goodness is what gets her through the end of the show and gets her out into the world as a person.
2: Hmm. You and Kyle spoke about the challenges of responding to the cruelty in the dialogue Kinsey, will you tell us what it was like working with an intimacy coordinator to perform certain scenes in the show?
0: Sure. I've worked with one before. This experience was great. Camille was fantastic. To do such work, you really have to be wholly in the moment with your partner. And doing our intimacy choreography really, really helped you set a foundation To make sure that once you're in a show, once you start taking off and you're not thinking about detail by detail, that everything still comes naturally while you're still able to maintain check-in points with your partner throughout the process. So we got it in the moment and we told each other explicitly the boundaries that we will and will not cross. We opened the floor for anything that may or may not change, because people's consent can change at any given point and you respect that and you go with it. And this process was just super easy. We were super open. What we set the first night was pretty much what we went with. And every night since, it felt very together and very safe.
2: This story is set on November 21st, 1963, the day before the assassination of President John Kennedy. Why was this date important to the storyline.
3: I have read commentary about this show that claims that setting the play at that particular night really captures an age of American innocence before things really took a a turn in a very different direction on the very next day. And I think it reflects the innocence not only of our of our Marines and of of Rose at the start of the show, but also of our country as as a whole.
2: Very much so. The Vietnam War era was among our nation's most divisive times, and those who served in the military did not necessarily receive thank yous or welcome home parades. Tremendous despair faced by returning veterans, some still suffering from it. Are you honoring veterans with this production at Woodstock Arts?
3: Yes, unequivocally, yes. We see this play very much as an act of service for those brave members of our armed services who fought in Vietnam. And and as you said, no, they were not treated kindly when they returned. We hope that they see themselves reflected and appreciated in this piece because while the show, as we've said, demonstrates incredible cruelty shown towards these women, it still makes an attempt to humanize these young men. I think that's actually one of the most beautiful things about this show is that it reminds us to look at the world in shades of gray, where I think it it truly exists. I think both our political idealism and our polarization of late has forced some of us into an us versus them mentality, seeing everything as black and white. And It's always the case in theater, but especially in a show like this, you're looking to find the humanity of every character on stage, even those that do things we might find reprehensible. And I think that's the real challenge.
2: Director Kyle Brumley and actor Kinsey Aaron, who portrays Rose in the musical Dogfight. You can see the show at Woodstock Arts Theater in downtown Woodstock through November 14th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with the author Lisa Cross-Smith on her novel, This Close to Okay. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Earlier this week, journalist Gail O'Neill and bookstore owner Bunny Hilliard shared some of their favorite reads with us. During the interview, Gail O'Neill gave praise to author Lisa Cross Smith for the unfamiliar. Crossmith has written a number of books, including So We Can Glow, Whiskey and Ribbons, and Every Kiss a War. When the author visited City Lights earlier this year, we focused on her most recent novel, This Close to Okay. Here, Lisa Crossmith starts our conversation by explaining the dire situation that begins the story.
4: So my character Tally encounters a man standing on the edge of a bridge as if he's about to jump. Um, She's on her way home in her car. She's on her way home from the gym after work. And so she immediately pulls over and talks to him and tries to get him to come back to the good side of the bridge. She's a therapist, but not telling him that in case he has an aversion to talk therapy in case um, knowing that information would make him shut down. So um, she talks to him on the bridge and eventually um, convinces him to go for a cup of coffee. She's just doing anything for distraction, anything to keep him from taking his own life. And so, yeah, the story starts there, which is uh, pretty wild, I know. yeah.
2: Oh, yes. And immediately we learn a lot about Talia. She says to the man, hey, I see you. You don't know me. But I care about you. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us more about Tally?
4: Yeah, I, I, Tally is a character who's almost a little too emotional, <laughs> almost a little <laughs> too emotional for the world. The world touches her in a, in a lot of different ways. And I, I think a lot of us are like that, or maybe more of us are like that, that we care to admit or that we care to let other people know. Um, She's definitely not a person who would ever just be able to drive past someone who was having any sort of trouble, but especially a big trouble like that. Um, She's almost like, um, I would say, would sacrifice herself for someone else. Um, And and that was an amazing character to to dig into because that, level of commitment that level of being able to sacrifice yourself to help someone else is not seen everywhere at least i don't think it's the sort of thing that sort of pops up when there's a a traumatic event or some sort of huge like a natural you know disaster or something like that you see the helpers you see the people who who really step in well that's who tally is because of her therapy background she knows that if she opens up to him, it could maybe hopefully help him open up to her. So immediately she starts telling him about her really bad days. And she's recently divorced and they built to have children, but her husband had an affair and got his Mistress pregnant. So she tells him that immediately, which makes him sort of be like, whoa, okay, now she's telling, you know, it's distracting though because she's telling him her stuff. Like, I know, right? Like, life can be really hard sometimes, but let's hang on together. So that's where we meet her. We get to know her, like you said, like really quickly.
2: And after she convinces the man whom we learn she calls Emmett,
4: mm-hmm.
1: after-
2: After she convinces Emmett to abandon his suicide attempt, she takes him for coffee and then back to her house. Mm -hmm. Why did you want Tally's home to be the setting for how the story unfolds?
4: Yeah, so when it comes to Tally's house, it's pretty much a character of its own. Um, She has this really perfect, beautiful home. That's filled with soft, comfortable, cozy things—soft blankets and candles—and two cats. And it's her safe space from the rest of the world. Um, especially the fact that she is a therapist and spends all day listening to the worst things that have ever happened to people. She has created a spot where, when she comes back there, the outside world stays outside, and she can feel safe and you know safe and comfortable there. It's her nest. So the fact that her house is so important to this, it just made sense in her mind to be like, I can get him there. If I can get him there, I can take care of this. I can save him. He will feel better instantly. As soon as he walks through my front door, she knows this in her mind because that's the home that she's created. It's an extension of her heart. It's an extension of these feelings that she feels in the way that she wants to comfort people. And so, yeah, I love spending time in her home. I you know, so many people write me and they want to go to her house. I want to go to her house. I love her house. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'd instantly feel better. I try as much as I can to get my own home to, to be that same way. And I definitely want to go to Tally's too. Oh, Tally is
2: attuned to vibes and she believes in energy. How does she glean that Emmett is a nice guy and where does the lilac puff come in, Lisa.
4: (laughs) Yeah. So I, I, what I had to do was deal with the cognitive dissonance um, in a character. I had to deal with the fact that I'm getting a woman to do something that is very, very scary and not at all a thing a woman should do, which is bring a strange man back to her home or be alone with a strange man in any in any way, really, if a woman does not feel comfortable doing that. She, of course, felt comfortable. And I I knew I needed to explain that to the reader. Um, There are a couple of different ways I did that. On on one hand, I have Tally, who's always been attuned to things, but especially after her divorce, it's really sharpened. So I mentioned that a couple of times that, you know, she Obviously, she's not overly trustful of people. Obviously, because of what happened with her husband, someone she obviously loved and trusted so much and he could betray her in that way, she learned a lot from that. And so I have her talk about, she feels, can feel the energy from a violent person or she feels like she can taste the energy from someone who's up to no good. And so she uses her senses to see what they come back with when she's around Emmett. And so through the course of them, like together in her kitchen, and they're making dinner, she's like, I have tried to feel this bad energy, this negative, this violent energy from you, and I'm not getting it. You seem like a kitten. It's like a lilac puff. That's what I'm getting back. The reason I picked a lilac puff is just because I love the color lilac like it's my favorite but me too.
1: me
2: too <laughs> I love anything purple but lilac most of all
4: I know oh I love it and I was thinking what's like the least scary thing is like a puff <laughs> it's like <laughs> it cannot it literally cannot hurt you in any way it's just a puff there. And so I, I use that. She refers to it several different times. He's got a lilac puff, like that's his energy. So she's not scared of it. In some other situations, she may be and has been, but she's not scared of Emmett in that way for as much as she can tell. And she trusts her instincts.
2: Hmm. What do we learn about Emmett early on?
4: So early on, we learned that Emmett is from another spot in Kentucky. The story is set in Louisville, but he's from a city that's a few hours away. We learned that he doesn't want to talk about what's going on, which is to be expected. He doesn't know Tally, doesn't really want to talk about it. But we, we also learned that he's a good listener. And when she uses her talk therapy tactics on him he will turn those right back around on her and ask her questions and he really gets her to open up and that was an interesting part for me to to just be able to explore um tally should really you know she is literally in the driver's seat when they're together and then figuratively she should be you would think in the driver's seat because this is her job whether she's telling him or not but he turns it around on her and gets her to talk and 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 not that many people ask tally how she's how she is doing, it's her job, um, you know, literally, but also she just takes that role. But he's a really good listener and turns it around on, you know, on her too. The story is written from both of their, um, we get to hear from both of them. So when we do get to hear from Emmett, we hear about, he's not gonna tell you everything, of course, I keep my secrets, but he lets the reader know that he's hurting and there's darkness there. And he's considering hanging on just because Tally stopped and wanted to talk to him. Right now, he's comfortable eating at her home at the beginning. And so it's a slow, slowly reveal of all the secrets that he has. But at first, we we do know that he has a lot of things going on, a lot of darkness. But through that, he's also getting Tally to spill her own darkness and her secrets, too. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The story takes place over the course of a long weekend. I had to remind myself of that toward the end of the book, Lisa.
4: Hmm.
2: Would you talk about how you provide so much insight into the characters' lives in this short time span?
4: Well, it's such an intense Situation. I, I speak often of um, forced intimacy. So, in my first novel, Whiskey and Ribbons, um, my characters were snowed in. So, all this stuff that they had been avoiding talking about, actively and aggressively, talk you know, avoiding talking about this, they're forced to talk about it because there was nowhere else to go. They were in the same house together, and okay, now we have to talk about it. I do that a lot of my work. So, it's like the forced intimacy; it brings out more than it normally would. Um, we're, this was an extreme situation. Um, if this gentleman was about to take his own life, so Tally's very easily like, okay, we have to talk about this. Like, what, what is going on? Like, what, what happened? Like, how can I help? Um, and so, having them together in that short, intense amount of time, and we're getting both of their inner thoughts. I felt like that was the best and easiest way for me to let the reader know what was going on the things they think about each other that could be wrong and the things that they're getting right about each other although it hasn't been completely revealed yet that back and forth like that really really helps me and also we meet a lot of tally's family she talks about her family so instantly like it's almost like in an instant they've been old friends and so using those things, her family, meeting some of those people, taking them back to her house, we're instantly immersed in her world and they're connected really, really quickly in a really special way, which is, it always gets me to the page because I think it's so special and unique. Um, and I love that intimacy between strangers and how people just reaching out in kindness, how it can really change someone's life.
2: Indeed. You reminded me of the snowstorm in whiskey and ribbons in your previous novel and this idea of forced intimacy in this book in this close to okay the rain feels like a character of its own Mm -hmm. would you talk would you talk about the importance of rain this imagery throughout the story
4: yeah wow i love how you said that i i love the rain i just love the rain so it um and especially here in louisville that week like it's like nine times out of ten it feels like that halloween weekend is just (laughs) a wash. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> it just is always raining. And I, I love that. I want the trick or treaters to be able to enjoy themselves, but I do just really love the rain. And so that was an element I just added to like the coziness and the intensity. Um, I turned up the coziness at like as high as it would go because they're dealing with some such, such darkness and such, so many big emotions, big, heavy emotions that I really dialed the coziness up. So what better time to light even more candles and to make cookies and to make another pot of tea because it's just raining so hard and let's not even go out. Let's just stay here and keep talking. Yeah, I just love it. I just love it. So I mean, there's no like there is like I could talk about like deeper meanings and stuff behind it, but also from the jumping point, I just really (laughs) (laughs) like okay.
2: No desert landscape for Lisa (laughs) Cross-Smith. Not in the cards. The American writer Henry James was noted for his attention to detail and describing every facet of the setting you do the same lisa would you read page 53 starting with emmett splashed his face
4: sure and thank you so much that's such a high compliment with the henry james i'm not quite sure what to do with that but say thank you (laughs) you're welcome thank you um emmett splashed his face wiped it dry on her hanging towel Looked around at the little glass bottles and plastic tubes she had in there. Everything smelled like flowers, a girl garden. The hallway bathroom, two candles, one half full of wax, one with a wick that hasn't been lit. A photo of her and another woman hangs in a white frame next to the light switch. A hook next to the frame, holding two wooden necklaces, one beaded one. Pearly white liquid soap in the dispenser, pale blue bath mat. Four fat bulbs of white light above her mirror. A postcard of Michelangelo's David tacked next to it. The bathroom door handles are curved silver with curlicues on the ends. Swan's neck faucet, silver. White floor vent, white tile. A full-length mirror on the back of the door. A wall outlet with two plugs, one holding an auto nightlight. A small garbage can in the corner next to the toilet. A shower curtain matching the bath mat. A round, frosted window fit for a ship.
2: Okay, this is the smallest room in the house.
4: <laughs> and this
2: is your description.
1: I love that you said that.
2: <laughs> and, you know, this is to be found throughout this rich, lyrical style. The characters in this Close to Okay are very intellectual they're quite sophisticated in their range of interests from visual art to music and pop culture. Why was that important for you to bring out in this story?
4: When it comes to visual art, I find myself going to visual art so often for inspiration. Um, I have big books of um, work by Van Gogh and, and the other artists I love so much. And, and I just will like when I'm just thinking or working on a project, I'll just flip through those books. I just love art, which sounds so plain and normal to say because it seems like everyone loves art and they should. But I just love art art and artists, museums. Um, And I give those sorts of things to to my characters all the time. To me, it says a lot about the character that they take the time to experience and enjoy things just for pleasure and just for pleasure's sake. And when it comes to music... Yeah. I don't think it'd be possible for me to write characters who didn't love music and have favorite songs. I just use that in the same way, character traits. So there's a part in here where she's searching for a song on the radio and she's like, Hey, tell me when to stop. And when they hear bring it on home to me by, Sam, by Sam cook, they're both like, okay, let's stop here. This is a good one. And I, I did that specifically because I can't even imagine a time and place where someone does not love that song, does not love Sam Cooke's <laughs> voice. <laughs> like, it's a really like a very comforting and old. Oldies have always been comforting like that for me like you know when I was a little girl riding around with my parents listening to the oldies channel so I specifically chose an oldie and a goodie and a perfect perfect song and a perfect voice and so I'll use things like that um, throughout the book just because it's a really easy connection to between characters people don't even have to know each other to stop and be like this painting is beautiful. The intimacy of strangers in a museum, you can share that sort of thing. Music and art bring people together, whether they even want to be brought together or not.
3: Hmm.
4: Lisa, did you have
2: personal experience with therapy?
4: In some ways, I do. In some ways, I don't. And so, yeah, you're the first person to ask me that question in that way. But, I hope.
2: Um... <laughs> I hope it wasn't too personal.
4: No, no, not at all. Um, What I usually like to talk about is the fact that I wrote obituaries was my first job out of college. And we took some grief counseling in order to best work with the people who were coming in. So I worked at the newspaper, and people would come in to place memorials for their loved ones. Every now and then someone would bring an obituary down there, although we had to go through the funeral home, but the families were able to come in and place memorials. And that part with the grief, because I talk about grief a lot in this book, was really helpful when it came to someone coming in who's actively grieving, who brings something special, a picture or a poem or special words they want to place in the newspaper to remember their loved one who has passed. And being able to work in that way and actively work with funeral homes and people who were grieving really did help in the therapy that was required for for my job for that, to actually go to talk to someone who worked in the role as a therapist. Also, there was a point in time where I was considering becoming a therapist myself. So a lot of the research and training there comes from my own personal experience with that.
2: Because it's The story clearly attests to the value and importance of psychotherapy. I was hoping you would discuss your author's note. Do you want to just read it?
4: I would like to read it. Um, I will say before I read it that it was something I was always thinking About as I was writing the book, I was like, I want to make sure that I can put this at the end. Um, I can't imagine writing this book and not putting this at the end, but this comes at the end of the book. Dear reader, I'm a firm believer in holding fast to good, lovely, beautiful things as much as I can in this world, even when times are hard. I want to comfort my characters when they are sad, depressed, or grieving. I love filling my books with coziness, warm drinks, and sweet conversations, even when I'm making my characters' worlds crumble all around them. In life, I try my best to look for the light and to look for small mercies, even when things are dark and scary. It's important for me to leave this book on that a hopeful note. If you're looking for a sign of hope, a sign of light, a sign to hold fast, please let this be it. New mornings mean new mercies. And if things do get too dark for you, please speak up and reach out for help. You're not alone. You matter. You are so loved.
2: And then after you sign off, there appears at the bottom of the page with the author's note, the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a tremendous service after a very powerful ending, Lisa. Thank you so very much.
4: Thank you for having me. I love talking to you.
2: <laughs> Author Lisa Cross-Smith from our conversation earlier this year. More information about her novel, This Close to Okay, is available on our website, wabe.org city citylights. Coming up. Classical violinist Geneva Lewis plays the blues. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Geneva Lewis has got the blues. In the very best way, the 23-year-old New Zealand-born violinist will perform an homage to the blues with pianist Jenny Gann Friday evening at Emory Schwartz Center. She joins us now via Zoom. Geneva Lewis, welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: When people think of the blues... Violin is not the first instrument that comes to mind. Please tell us about your connection to the blues and why you think it's perfectly appropriate for your instrument.
1: Well, I think that the most simple answer is just that it sounds wonderful on the violin. You know, it's kind of interesting approaching this idea of playing the blues you know which is a genre with such a meaningful and important history that of course you know belongs to african americans so trying to play this music in a respectful and authentic way is something that is very important it's just very exciting to have the privilege to play this music and to to share it with people
2: yeah i was thinking the closest I could associate with blues violin would have been jazz violin by Stefan Grappelli and Joe Venuti. Do you arrange the music for your own performances?
1: I don't actually. All of the pieces that I'm playing are exactly as notated by other people. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the pieces are. Some of them, particularly a piece I'm playing by David Baker called Blues Deliver My Soul is written in a very improvised manner. a a cadenza for the violin before the the piano joins so you know I do personally I'm much more comfortable in the realm of fully notated music but it's definitely exciting to have the feeling of you know sounding as if you're, you're improvising
2: yes we have Dave Baker to thank for bringing jazz into the academic realm of music study he created the Jazz Studies program at Indiana University School of Music, and I wondered, since you will be playing this piece by him along with other American composers, works by William Grant Still... Gershwin, as well as works by Debussy and Ravel, will you be performing the pieces in chronological order?
1: They're very much out of order, actually. I've kind of grouped them. The first two pieces are both the most direct link to the blues, in a way, where, you know, it's in the title of the piece, it's in the form of the piece, It it is the entire genre of the piece, you know, and then that's followed by the W C, which, in terms of the blues program, is the least directly connected. You know, but W C was very much inspired by all kinds of influences in his work from from different places, and it pairs so well with the Revel that ends the program. That that's the thinking, and then of course the the Gershwin is you know such a beloved American piece, and again is this celebration of, of music and combining genres. other styles, but I thought it fit in so well. And it's just so much fun, you know.
2: Which pieces by Debussy and Ravel are you playing?
1: So I'll be playing Debussy's Violin Sonata, which he only wrote one sonata for violin. And this was actually one of the last pieces he ever wrote. And he gave the premiere of this piece, which was his last performance in public. He was playing at the piano. And it was written in 1917 when, you know, he was doing very poorly, he was dying from cancer and he knew it and was in the throes of the war and of course was having a very difficult time with that too. You know, sad, sad piece, really, although it's full of so much. And then for Ravel, I'll be playing his second violin sonata, which he has two sonatas. It's a little bit, I think the way people refer to them has changed a bit because he has a another sonata that was published posthumously. So this is kind of his main, most well-known sonata. But what's wonderful about it in Time to the Blues program is... The second movement is titled Blues, and it's very clearly and directly inspired by the jazz and the blues that he was hearing come into popularity in in Paris in the 1920s. exciting piece
2: and and he also provided that in his piano concerto right which part of the debussy seems bluesy to you
1: in terms of the piece there are some characteristics that you could find in blues which is this kind of narrative and storytelling element throughout the piece it is so vivid and colorful and many parts of it to me are so gestural and improvised, that, you know, it's definitely the farthest reach from the blues, but I feel that it still shares all these incredible similarities.
2: Oh, wow. You now have won some of the most distinguished awards given to musicians, including this year's Avery Fisher Career Grant. Our listeners may know you from your time as performance today's Young artist in residence. You were Musical America's new artist of the month. And these are only a few mentions of recognition. What has been the impact of all this recognition on your life and career?
1: Well, it's been very overwhelming in many ways. And you know most importantly i couldn't be more grateful for all of this happening to be honest all of it was a total surprise you know it's not <laughs> not something you totally prepare for and you know it's all been it's all been very exciting i mean of course i still consider this to be you know i feel like i'm just starting out i'm i feel like i'm at the beginning of everything and i'm so excited about many opportunities that have come from all this and I'm just trying to stay focused on you know finding the time that I need to be dedicating everything I can to my art and my music and just doing the best I can and and working at what I love and sharing it with with people who care to listen. Hmm.
2: Are you still a student at the New England Conservatory?
1: I am. So this is actually my sixth year there. So it, it very much feels like home. I'm currently in the middle of my artist diploma program studying with Miriam Freed, who has been my teacher the whole time I've been at NEC and I, I worked with her for my undergrad when I was getting my bachelor's there. But yeah, I'm in the middle of my second year of the AD program, which is a very small program that is kind of geared towards students who are preparing for or starting a performance career. So it's very flexible and allows for a lot of traveling and and has some really exciting opportunities, like I'll get to play with the... Uh, school orchestra in april which is super exciting and other things like that
2: hmm. Geneva i read that your father was a tennis star a wimbledon finalist in 1983 do you play tennis
1: up until the time i was about 13 i i played competitively and i always really loved it you know my Dad is obviously my coach, and you know, such a great way to spend time with him. And yeah, I love, I love the sport.
2: <laughs> it's funny to think of these very rigorous musical competitions you've taken part in, and then to imagine you on a tennis court. Do you ever think back, or do you compare the differences in competing?
1: I definitely think that there are so many similarities in, you know, participating in either of these, you know, and I think that the kind of work and dedication and love that that both of those endeavors require is extremely comparable.
2: Yeah, labors of love and personal best all come into play. Oh, and play. I hadn't thought of that, literally and figuratively. (laughs) Right. Geneva Lewis, this has been a pleasure. Congratulations, and thank you so very
1: much. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Violinist Geneva Lewis will give her recital at Emory Schwartz Center for the Performing Arts tomorrow, November 12th. More information is available on our website, wabe.orgslash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., a Corey Johnson, also known as Ok Cello, tells us about his third studio album, Beacon with music and spoken word. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves, Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wrights, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights Underscore Lois rights. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L O I S R E I T Z E S. Thank you for listening to W A B E at Choice for NPR.